Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is the Culturally Competent Conversations for Equity and Belongingness Summit, also known as the C3EB Summit. If you are a business owner or a decision maker in your organization, not focusing on equity and inclusion of your personnel is harming you. Research shows that 70% of employees are not engaged in their workspaces. Not only are you not getting their best contribution, but the higher turnover you are facing is costing you in rehiring, retraining, and onboarding new people. Get your access pass to C3EB to experience nearly 100 hours of content across nine tracks and a dozen industry sectors for their summit on November 19th and 20th to find out just how much money you can save while maximizing your profit margins. Visit www.c3eb.com. On this episode, we have Rohan Verma. Rohan was born in India but migrated to Canada with his family when young, ultimately relocating to California right after 8th grade. He has been influenced as an entrepreneur from an early age, participating in the management of his family's business while still in high school. He attended UC Berkeley where he graduated with a 4.0. He spent several years at LinkedIn forging partnerships, including on the content publishing side. Forgoing earlier plans to attend law school, he had a brief stint at Dropbox before returning to LinkedIn. He recently left to launch Arbor Advisory, an executive and leadership coaching practice. Rohan, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really great. Excited to have this conversation. Um, you've had this uh, kind of dual track approach to to your life, uh, a family business, very entrepreneurial, but also professional career. And so um, the juggling act in and of itself has uh, been very impressive to me. And so I uh, would love to dive into the details of that. And I think it'll be very inspiring for for our audience to, to hear about. So um, going back from the very beginning, uh, you're joining us now from the Bay Area. Is that yep. where you were born? I was actually born in India. Um, and it's funny, I was born in New Delhi, but the people that are actually from New Delhi and spent their entire lives there, like a joke that I can claim Delhi whenever it's convenient. I moved when I was six months old okay. to Canada. And so whether it's based on my accent or lack thereof, people are like, are you really from India? But yeah, I was born in India, then moved to Canada. effectively grew up in, uh, in Toronto, Canada. So. Okay, uh, Toronto, not Vancouver, okay. Not Vancouver, yeah, we went east. Actually, technically Ottawa, for those of your listeners that are familiar oh, yeah. with the eastern seaboard of Canada, and then moved to Toronto when I was like a year old. So most of my K through eight, uh, grade eight was in Canada. Got you. Were you near Brampton? near Brampton, um, probably 40 minutes from Brampton. Okay. Um, Brampton has a, it's very, um, it's, it's got a lot of reputation for, you know, amazing Indian culture, amazing food, amazing music. I love uh, Punjabi music and some of the best Punjabi music artists come from Brampton, but we were pretty, uh, pretty far away. We didn't really go there growing up. Gotcha. No, no, understood. 
Understood. So how old were you when you made it to California? Right after eighth grade. Uh, so what was I was 13 going on 14 years old. Basically the day after eighth grade graduation, we moved to Canada. My dad and my youngest brother, my middle brother were here about a month beforehand. Gotcha. My parents had bought a UPS store franchise, which at the time was called Mailboxes, etc. For oh, sure. um, those of your listeners that are a little bit older, um, they rebranded in 2003. And so my dad and my youngest brother, who at the time was six or seven years old, needed to come and take possession of the store, which is in Oakland, California. The store is still there. We don't own the store. And my mom and um, my other brother, my youngest brother, who's uh, at the time was um, maybe five, four or five, moved a, a month later. Basically said goodbye to all the friends I made that were going on to high school in, in Oakville where I grew up and going to this weird new magical place, California. Okay, wow. So um, of your siblings, you were the only one born in India. The right. other two were born in Canada. That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so shifting here, Going to high school, um, you, as we've talked in the past, you started helping out in the family business yeah. um, basically right away. Um, what was that like balancing working for the family business, studying, and, and did you have time for your own uh, personal pursuits? I understand you did a lot on the debate and speaking yeah. side when you were in high school. Yeah, I, I did. I'll give you two answers as to what it was like. I'll give you an answer when I'm in my old age at 33, it's gray, a lot of gray hair. And then my answer kind of contemporaneously when I was 14 sucked. It really sucked. Um, <clears throat> and the reason why at the time I thought it sucked, it's because after school, every day-ish, when I say ish, I mean, maybe on a Friday here or there um, as the exception, but my mom would you know, drop my dad off at work go to the store, drop myself, starting high school, my two youngest brothers, one started middle school, one started kindergarten. So we all kind of ratcheted to our new schools, luckily yeah. in California, but we'd go and help out at the stores uh, after work. So my mom would pick us up at 3.30, 3.40, whatever, school, whenever school ended, and go and help at the store for two hours, three hours, because we closed at 6, 6.30. By the time you close out the registers, you know, vacuum the store like you didn't have employees at the time we were one store my dad yeah. sold all his uh, stocks that he had earned in the corporate world and every penny he had to open this new store in california so we certainly couldn't hire an employee and why it sucked is <clears throat> uh, i didn't see anybody that was like myself in my peer group mm -hmm. probably to my advantage okay not not that i don't have reverence or respect um that we were blessed you know, now we have many stores, not just one. But at the time, after school, it's not as if I could, you know, just go and kind of hang out. At, you know, kids, we would just kind of like walk over to 7-Eleven and, you know, get a snack and like go hang out on the, near the country club and near the field or, you know, on the, on, you know up on the field and kind of, um, kind of hang around. I had to go to work. And I grew up in a pretty upper middle class, affluent neighborhood, but we were not at the time upper class or affluent, mm -hmm. right? It's akin to um, all my peers, their parents were doctors, lawyers, engineers in Silicon Valley. We're, we're relatively close to Silicon Valley. 
and the kid whose parents had already made it in Silicon Valley, right? Because they weren't they were not living in Silicon Valley. They might have retired and moved up a little bit north and east. And so it was very disjarring. Um, at the time, I was probably a little bit resentful. Um, now, fast forward 17 years later, was the most amazing thing in the world because I also ended up working through college. I went to college nearby and just the ability to multitask and compartmentalize different parts of life and a number of other lessons that I've learned have been invaluable. But I, at the time when you're a 14 year old kid and you just hang out with your friends, really, really is not great. No, I completely understand, and thank you for framing it that way. I appreciate the the candor. Um, you said something interesting. So um, I just presume that um, your family were um, you know, uh, small, mid-sized business owners in, in Canada as well. But it sounds like your dad was a corporate executive. Um, yeah. What prompted the decision to make the shift? Yeah, you 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 totally caught that. It um, my mom was a homemaker in Canada. She had gone to university and had her master's in India, but, you know, had me as like probably one or two years after she graduated from her master's and didn't end up pursuing the field of political science from Delhi University. My dad was in the pharmaceutical industry as a, originally a territory sales manager, regional sales manager, and then eventually a national sales manager for about 20 or so years. Um, but we would always come to California in our summer vacations or winter break. In Canada, we call it March break, not, winter, not, not spring break. Right. We have a lot of cousins here. My mom has a large extended network <clears throat> of cousins, first cousins. In the Indian culture, there is no concept of first or second cousins. They're all just cousins, <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. as you may or may not know. And um, a lot of those uh, family members are small and now their businesses are not so small business owners are all in been, they've been in the bay area some of whom have dated back since the 1950s so wow. even before the immigration uh you know after the 70s um there was a big flood of after h1b was established and up for yeah. other reasons immigrants from china and india we had some family there well before that and so we'd always come but to answer your question in a very succinct way, the reason was to create a better life for myself and my two brothers. And my dad wanted something more entrepreneurial, didn't want necessarily to keep living the corporate life. He had that experience, <clears throat> wanted that for myself and my brothers, but eventually, you know, if our hearts so desire to kind of be your own boss. And the educational opportunities here, while granted they're great in Canada, they're great or if not better here, but there's more opportunity here. There are more, there are one or two or three arguably really great schools, universities in Canada. There are many good ones. There are few great ones in the United States. There's more, many more great ones and even better good ones. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that makes complete sense. And I totally understand that way of thinking, uh, parental sacrifice to- yes bring the best for, for he had a good life right he but yeah. you know um expense account uh car paid for by the company moving here where like you gotta <laughs> vacuum your store so exactly. you know someone yeah. messes up in the bathroom you gotta clean it up there ain't nobody yeah. gonna clean up for you yeah no, no, absolutely well it's fascinating the um i often talk about this how it's the, the middle class that really migrates um because um uh, the lower classes socioeconomically don't have the means and they, the wealthy yes. don't have the need 
uh, they're very comfortable. And so it's a middle class, you know, we, who does do, we don't want to slide down the socioeconomic ladder. So that's why we make those moves and, and embrace that um, uh, sort of uh, uh, adventure uh, because it's a challenge. It's unsettling. It's unknown. Um, and so uh, I totally get that. And obviously similar vignettes with, with my family and how our history oh. progressed. So, um, And your family is from India as well? Yes. Your parents. Uh, I was born in Germany, actually, to, uh, to parents mm. of Indian origin. Um, my dad had, um, he had left India to do his PhD in the U.S. and then was doing a postdoctoral fellowship in Germany. Mm. And uh, I was a reunion baby. <laughs> nice middle child uh my older sister was born in india and gotcha. uh, and then um uh, after a few years we migrated to the u.s and so my my kid brother was uh, was born in the state so we've got three different continents there gotcha. um, cool. but it, you know it was that uh, that impetus my i mean if we go way back my family was impacted by partition my yep. paternal grandfather had uh some industrial holdings in what is present-day karachi but um, being a Hindu family in a Muslim majority area um, was, was challenging, but a great lesson in how we get out from underneath religious strife. It was his uh, Muslim friends who got him out. Interesting. Uh, and so yeah. I think the key is that um, the, the dehumanization of people is what leads to racism, uh, religious fervor and strife. If you see people as your neighbor, as also a, a father is also a son is also a brother or a sister mother daughter yeah. um it's very hard to hate in that situation i can empathize with that i mean like my, like my four grandparents both grandparents on both sides are were born in what would now be considered pakistan mm-hmm. and um but yeah growing up some of my best friends were always pakistani right so that never uh not that they carried um you know the resentment or hatred and it certainly didn't permeate down into other other generations but um yeah i can certainly empathize with that kind yeah. of origin story yeah. well i mean it, it, it splintered punjab right in half right, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. right. of course you know um we can communicate uh, as hindi speakers with those speaking urdu more easily than we can south indians yeah, with Punjabi. Uh, tamil Telugu, or even the gujaratis right yeah, Bengalis. Yep. that's right <laughs> that's absolutely right yeah yeah even yeah even uh you know there's some people from afghanistan for example they can understand punjabi a little bit yes, or can right. get, make it make make it make do in, in urdu as well versus yeah, yeah. the dravidian languages from the south are completely different exactly. well, i know some punjabi dwellers who uh, know pashto it's a, well interesting oh my grandfather actually uh knew um farsi he worked for the uh, Indian government. Uh, so my mom was born in Italy and lived all over the world because my grandfather uh, was a diplomat. Government. He was a diplomat. Yeah. Nice. So he spoke uh, Farsi, Urdu, and I think Pashto as well. Wow. Um, well that's so great. Oh, um, that could be a whole conversation. Uh, <laughs> let's come back to to you. Um, <laughs> So you're doing a lot of, uh, uh, as your extracurricular speaking debate, yes. what prompted the interest there? I mean, was it sort of this historical lineage, your father, grandfather being a diplomat, your mom being yeah. a political scientist? You know, um, that's, that's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. There probably was a little bit of that in there. 
Um, my grandfather uh, was, you know, very eloquent. My mom is my mom is an amazing writer and reader. So we literally grew up with reams and reams of books, shelves and shelves of books. Which actually, where we're recording this right now, at my parents' house, as we discussed. So upstairs is a bedroom that has all of our childhood books <laughs> that made the move from Canada to the U.S. Like five different houses in the U.S. Now, amazing. many years later. So I think it started with, I would always, always, always read as a young kid. That's number one. The second is, and this is going to um, kind of be the antithesis of reading, is I watched a lot of Law & Order, the okay. TV show Law & Order. Nice. It was my favorite show. When I was six, seven onwards, that's what I would watch uh, you know, on the weekends. They would have reruns. Um, I wasn't allowed to stay up until 9 p.m., whatever, on a Thursday night when they would have the actual episodes air the new episodes air and i would just love the contention in the courtroom right the debates back and forth the objections and I, I, from then on i always wanted to be a lawyer wow so and you identified with the da's i did definitely <laughs> definitely um to i've been working on it but as my, many of my friends and maybe former colleagues will will let you know um when i really get passionate about a topic I can get um, asked questions in a very direct way or in a very leading way, um, which is what you're supposed to do as a lawyer, but not what you're supposed to do at all if you're not a lawyer. So that's a very bad habit. <laughs> uh, so it's a useful habit sometimes, but a very bad habit. Right. Um, and also my grandma on my dad's side, um, my daddy who lives in New Delhi right now, she is an amazing woman. She was a scout's leader boy scouts and girl scouts leader in her um uh, city village i guess wow. in new delhi is what you call it um uh the little neighborhood in their colony and herself would do speeches and my cousins in india as well they were very good orators and very good speakers in addition to you know being good at math and science and all the things that you're kind of behind the screen or behind the book and so i found i started to was pretty good at it, it being speaking for the large group, speaking in front of a small group, starting with, with memorize orations of other people's speeches, then writing my own speeches and then giving them. And then what was really fun in the event that I did in high school and college and onwards is extemporaneous speaking. You okay. speak extemporaneously, but the event itself is called extemporaneous speaking, where you basically draw a topic out of the hat about foreign policy or domestic policy, and you have to give a seven minute speech with 30 minutes of prep with no notes of seven minutes and citing various sources, whether it be literary works, magazines like The Economist or foreign policy, et cetera, and come up with a thesis. So, you know, should, um, uh, what, are, what are, should Turkey be, one of the questions that we, we used to get was, should Turkey be allowed to enter the United Nations? And then should Turkey be removed from the United Nations over time? those kinds of um, kinds of questions on the domestic side as well. So yeah, from an early age, I had a great interest in speech and debate. So I was really good at it. Wasn't great at sports, was really, really good at debate. And so <laughs> that was my, that was kind of my extracurricular, I kind of fell into it. Nice, well, uh, kindred spirit. I was captain of my high school debate team. No way, there you go, I could, I could kind of tell. I can kind of <laughs> tell, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of those, uh, yeah, again, vignettes have lasted on. So, so that's really awesome. Um, you found your intellectual and home and your kind of your tribe in that, uh, that arena. 
And so yeah. uh, the decision to study at Berkeley, was that because you wanted to be close to home? I, I think uh, it's, uh, if there was a two by two grid of like, good, like school, good, bad, good, and then proximity, like right. this was in the, you know, the good, <laughs> best school and closest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had I gotten into a school that was just as good as Berkeley and further away, I probably would have stayed close to home. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the reasons that we did discuss earlier in that period of time and kind of the origin story of my parents' business, we had that original location that we um, purchased on Piedmont Avenue in Oakland. For those of you listeners sure. who are familiar with that area, 41st in Piedmont, there's a, one of the original Pete's Coffee is there. Um, fun fact, if you watch the movie Cars, not Cars, The, um, the Incredibles, the, the Pixar movie, there's a Fenton's ice cream shop that's depicted in the movie it's like in the movie and then there's our location amazon is there as well but so right when i graduated high school we had one of these locations and we could pivot right my parents could pivot it that pivot could be you know double down on one and a second location that we were opening up in emeryville which in 2003 for the again those of your listeners who are familiar with the area emeryville is pretty popping right now it's yeah. very gentrified. There are tons of businesses there. 15, what was it, 2020, 17 years ago, Emeryville was a very, very different place. Mm. And um, you know, my parents made a strategic bet to open a store there. We could have stopped there. The other bet that they were going to make was to kind of expand wider, more stores, you know, sell, one, sell the cash cow or the, not really a cash cow, it's the one source of income that they had, the main store on Piedmont Avenue. And then could they expand to other locations, you know, um, whether co-invest with somebody or buy um, maybe cheaper locations, ones that didn't have as much revenue, but could spread out their territorial expansion. One kind of important chess piece in that game would be someone to help out, right? And so luckily um, for, I guess, all of us, not to ascribe too much um, kind of uh, responsibility to myself for the for the success, but I was here at Berkeley, and I was lived at home my first year uh, of college and my last year, so I kind of bookended it, which was not a great decision um, in hindsight. Like really, really, really bad decision. I should have just kind of gone and lived in the dorms, even if yeah. the dorms are like twenty, thirty minutes away. But because I was home, you can kind of like talk shop after school after work right sure. about like you know the different things that you need to do when operating and expanding a new store it's not just you don't do it nine to five and you know working with the architects and getting planning permits and all the now we had to hire employees really for the first time like how do we afford to do that all that kind of stuff happened after hours and it's good that i was there um uh, at home literally physically at home yeah. going into campus yeah wow well it's um kind of the mirror image of uh, some sacrifice on your side uh, to honor the sacrifices your parents made to uh, facilitate your, your absolutely yeah. yeah yeah I never really questioned it like not even not, never yeah. look, looked at it again you know I look <clears throat> I look back at it now and I may well the high school piece sucked right that's not a very <laughs> eloquent way of putting it but it's it, it's it's real right it's, yeah. it's how yeah. one feels and like the benefit of time the time horizon now is i can look back and have the reverence uh, that we're blessed literally 
blessed to have the ability to even talk about owning our own business, right? Yeah. Even if it's one store and you have to run it yourself, that's still a, a massive, massive blessing, especially coming as immigrants and establishing that here. It's very difficult um, to do. And my parents sacrificed a ton. My dad sacrificed a growing budding career, comfortable life, all our friends in Canada, a whole bunch of like, there are numerous, countless, hundreds and thousands of those kind of immigrant or um, origin stories. And I'm so proud to say that we are also one of them yeah. in this amazing country. But um, yeah, over time, I had more reverence for the sacrifice, but in the thick of it, it kind of was, it was yeah. difficult. Felt you know, somewhat like a burden, I can imagine. It was, I would say it was a burden. Yeah, a burden or the way I looked at it was, I'll give you a specific example. Um, this is before, uh, certainly before I met my, my wife, we've been married for three years. We dated for almost, almost three years beforehand, but when I was dating in the city, you know, I come across people and, um, oh, you went to Cal, you went to Stanford or Davis or wherever, like there's a big pocket of different types of schools people went to. And this is California. Everyone says where they went to school, what they do when they first meet somebody, right? This is what you do in, in, in the Bay Area, which is not a great thing. But in, when you're playing the game, you got to play the game, right? And that's, yes, that's, what it right. Is. that's right. And so I would say I went to, went to Cal and um, you know, they start talking about the football team. And oh, like you know, that person might have also gone to Cal, was a fan of Cal football. And um, I'll be like, you know, I actually never went to a Cal football game. And the, the person I saw him a date with like what like this is such a foreigner what are you talking about <laughs> and then i was like yeah i had to open our store in emeryville every saturday so that my parents get the day off right like so my yeah. mom didn't have to open this store. my mom was working in the emeryville store every day and it was a newer store it was closer to campus that those years i was living on campus it was easy for me to open the store on a saturday and go back but i never got to go to cal football game and i would be constantly reminded of that i was like shit like what would it have been like if I could have, because then if you open the store on a Saturday, right, that means that on a Friday night, you can't really go out and party and get, you know, plastered at a frat party because you got to wake up early and open the store. And it's not just like you're, you know, punch, you know punching in the clock and like typing behind a spreadsheet, like you're running your own store. Exactly. And so it, there's a trickle effect. And at some point I was like, what would it have been like? So it wasn't that I, it was necessarily a burden, but it was like, Hmm. I started questioning and thinking about like my mind are drifting with what it would have been had I been dealt a different set of cards. This is not a very healthy thing to do. It's not, there are, there are productive ways of trying to think through that, but that was not a productive way of doing it. Yeah. No, understood. No, and I appreciate the candor with which you shared that. Um, you graduated from Berkeley with a 4.0, which yes. is phenomenal and um, suggests um, a lot of discipline. Yes, academically, yes. Yeah. <laughs> because there, I think we're most of us, like, uh, when we're taking the subjects we love, then there's passion there. So we put in the time, the effort, we think about a career. When there's stuff that we're not as moved by, we're just like, oh, please, just, I got to get this done. But um, you sort of brought your A game to everything. I did, but that was after some stumbles uh, early on. So I was actually a, econ and business major. So there's a pre-business program at Cal. You apply after your freshman year to be part of the Haas School of Business in your gotcha. sophomore year. 
um, and it's an impacted major, meaning you had to apply. It's kind of like you went to UPenn, I believe, right? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like the similar to the undergrad Wharton program and the Huntsman program within the Wharton program as well. Um, but I was like not good at the academic econ classes. I was like really, really bad yeah. my freshman year. And so I also had to pivot. 90% of my friends were business majors, probably like 60% of that 90% were investment bankers. Like maybe a third of those are now still investment bankers in our early 30s. Um, those that are still bankers like love, love banking. <laughs> um, but so like my friends group, um, I, I aspire to be like a lot of the friends that I was, had the blessing of creating in college, very academically minded, but also very well-rounded, but they're all kind of in this business realm. There weren't many, um, I was a part of an Indian business fraternity at Cal, professional fraternity. And there were maybe, there was maybe one lawyer in a then cohort of 30 under uh, 20 or 30 active members and then a broader umbrella of maybe 50 total members that included alumni that were lawyers, like one person, right? So like what, 2% probably? And now there's many more. And so I kind of tried to be like them. And I realized like that wasn't my academic strong suit. So the sophomore year, I changed it up. I took, I uh, majored in political science and political economy. I took summer classes to bring my grades up as well. And so I counterbalanced the early stumbles, really academic. I did not have a 4.0 my freshman year, but I over-indexed and got, you know, four point plus in certain classes gotcha. and that I was better at to counterbalance. It was, it was pretty um, difficult. <laughs> the very practical very, side of economics. Yeah, it was very practical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a call a weighted average, right? So you right. find courses where you can get over a 4.0 uh, and build a weighted average. So that was, it was, uh, Berkeley was very difficult academically for me in the beginning. It was a very, very difficult environment. Throwing in with like thousands and thousands of kids, family work stuff. Like it was, it was very difficult in the beginning, but then I got my groove after the first year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always uh, an adjustment period, especially with all you had going on. When you made this pivot, is that when you decided um, to, uh, were you thinking at that point that you would go on to law school? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. So I was studying for the LSAT my junior year, like every um, kid does, generally speaking. Some wait till after their senior year, but I started my junior year. And then I studied during my, um, I took a fifth year uh, at Berkeley you know, I wanted to stay an extra semester, even a full year, just given I'd spent a lot of time taking some reduced course loads because of the family yeah. business stuff. And so I really wanted a, a real college experience sure. and, um, you know, picked up some extra courses, prepared for the LSAT, brought up some of my grades. And um, that's uh, when I actually started interning at LinkedIn, which we'll probably talk about, but I actually interned at LinkedIn during my last year of college going to school a couple of days a week and then going down to Silicon Valley um, the remainder of the days of the week to, to work with, at a company that I was there for over 10 years. Yeah, amazing. Well, so how did you get that uh, internship at LinkedIn? It's a good segue. Yeah, well, there's a tagline that we had at LinkedIn and it probably still propagates all over the website, which is relationships matter. Mm. And relationships definitely mattered in how I got my job at LinkedIn. To make a very, very long story short, I got my job at LinkedIn because of connections enabled via the business fraternity that I mentioned to you. It's called Alpha Epsilon Zeta. At the time, um, one of uh, my brothers 
then girlfriend, now wife, and you know they have a beautiful family, three, four kids. Um, she was actually working at LinkedIn and made a call out for interns for the summer. And I got this email to our fraternity distribution list. From time to time, we would get emails from either active members who were looking for interns that they could absolutely destroy in a summer banking internship or you know other opportunities. I, I say that facetiously. And so this email dropped in my inbox. Um, I remember distinctly, um, you know, Sheena who had requested an intern for the summer. And I think I got that email in like April or May. And I didn't pay any attention to it because I was studying for the LSAT. I was doing LSAT class, going to my parents' store to work, like have my group, right? And then going to actual class. And then something maybe like two months later, and I'd heard of LinkedIn actually. LinkedIn was not very popular, but because of some projects we had done and recruiting, right? Monster.com was very big back then. And there were other professional networks as well. I, I remember sending an email to Sheena, um, I think it was sometime in late May on a Wednesday or Thursday night at like 10 p.m. saying, hey, actually, if you're still looking for an intern, I'd be interested, here's my background. And um, you might, may or may not know of me, but I got the email through Alpha Epsilon Zeta's uh, email list. I think got an email like an hour later at 10 or 11 saying, we've been recruiting for like two months. The final rounds are tomorrow. But because I know you're kind of a known commodity, you're known to us, at very least, I'll take a phone screen with you now, like at 11 o'clock, can you do it? <laughs> like, no, like I, I made up some excuse. I need to prep, right? So I, I got, I said, she said, look, I'll take a call with you tomorrow morning. But if it works out, then you kind of move on the process. You have to come down to campus, to our campus in Mountain View for a final round. Like we've been interviewing candidates for two months. Like you're yeah. lucky I, I responded to this email. If she did not respond to that email on a yeah. Wednesday night at 11 p.m., <laughs> she had been recruiting for candidates for months, yeah. probably great candidates. Now, eventually, I think I held my own and I beat out the other candidates. But that relationship is what kind of opened that initial door for then for her and I to have a good productive conversation. And then the rest is history. But um, yeah, luck matters, man. It's, yeah. It's, luck is well, a part it's, of it. Luck is there, but it's also the um, there's, a, there's a motivation, a drive to do the things that maybe seem like they're long shots. Yes. Uh, and just, you know, show up and be present. And, and I mean, you could have blown it off yourself and been like, oh, whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I think we get rewarded when we um, kind of um, stick our necks out and try something. Yeah. And um, so uh, we will eventually get to this, but I just wanted to highlight that um, in your, your parting letter from LinkedIn, Sheena was one of the people that you singled yes. out as being meaningful to your career there. Yeah, in um, the, there was a farewell post that I wrote when I left LinkedIn recently. And I love cars. You're from Germany. I love German cars. We've got a <laughs> stable of German, like yeah, I'm Yeah. <laughs> And so um, the driving metaphor is something that actually fit in my professional life as well. And so I wrote a post uh, about leaving LinkedIn and starting my new venture. And I effectively laid out some steps that they constitute the optimal way to run through a racetrack. It's called a racing line, right? right? And it's technically the fastest way to get through a racetrack 
is not always necessarily the shortest way, right. it, like by distance wise. And so there's kind of three steps. And the first is really, you know, taking stock of where you are before you enter a turn. The second is accelerating into the turn and then, and then going forward after that. And so in my pivot, when I'm changing directions in my career, moving from LinkedIn to the next thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, I wanted to take stock of all the things that kind of laid the foundation for me to make this pivot, Sheena being one of those individuals who not only took this interview at random hour at night, but also like helped grow and build me as a, as a young professional in the first couple of years that I worked uh, with and for her. That's really great. Well, it's a fantastic story. And, and I love the, uh, the car metaphor, of course, it's, uh, it's phenomenal. Um, have you, you've been to uh, Munich, I take it. I've been to Munich. Um, I've been to Berlin a couple of times and Munich um, this past, uh, uh, this last um, March, March of last year. Okay. I went on the tail end of a business trip. Did you visit the BMW, the BMW plant? We didn't. So we drove. So our flight was that afternoon and we were about to go to the museum. We didn't, but we actually rented a, BM, uh, a BMW 7 Series um, from Avis. Like Avis in Germany yeah. has the most ridiculous, <laughs> cool cars. Yes. And they rented it. We drove out to Austria um, on the tail end of a business trip. Oh, nice. And, uh, and then we came back. So I got a chance to drive on, on the German freeways, which is a dream. But I'll, I'll go back one day to Germany. Yeah. Front. The Autobahn is really exceptional. Um, I've, you know, been on with a five series and just thought I was really opening up the engine. And then suddenly I see lights behind me telling me to get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I must have been doing 220 kilometers, oh which is what, God. like 130 yeah. miles per hour. By and then there's this Porsche just zoom, going right past me. It's terrifying, right? That I was in their way. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah, it happened to me as well. So I was like, I'm just gonna move over on this little. Yeah, lane. I'll stay on the right side. Yeah, it's cool this for like a, a little bit, but then you want to stay in the right lane because you're not used to driving. The, That's the, the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you start to feel the car, this was a five series at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so much more we can chat about uh, in that regard. Yeah. Um, so um, we've kind of. Uh, to use your term from earlier, bookended the the yeah. LinkedIn experience. So let's fill in the the, the gaps. Sure, um, sure. Uh, your internship translated into a full time position once you graduated. Yes, right. and um, you spent a lot of time on content partnerships. I did. So what that means in practical terms is if you've ever you know opened up LinkedIn or even Facebook or Twitter to some extent and you see a river of content, right? You see updates from your connections, so-and-so just started this company or is doing this venture or literally wrote out a status update. Then you also see third-party news content, you see images. You may see a publication sending an article to you. Maybe you follow the New York Times on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or maybe you follow a topic like you want to learn about entrepreneurship or crypto. And so LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter have curated a set of materials and content relevant to that particular topic. My job was effectively many, many years ago before any of these, like these concepts that I just listed out are pretty well known, right? Like you go on a social network, you follow a topic, you're going to get content from third party news publishers from your connections, maybe from a, paid influencer, et cetera. 
But back then in 2009, this was relatively uncommon on social networks and certainly on LinkedIn. So my job was effectively to co-opt the ecosystem of third-party news publishers and build relationships such that they would provide content for LinkedIn members to make the LinkedIn experience more sticky, more productive. Like, so you're not just coming to find a job. We wanted to help you be better at the job that you're already in, in addition to helping you find a new job. And so it's signed partnerships with companies like, again, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, blogs like TechCrunch and Wired and VentureBeat in the tech space. And we would do things like get the LinkedIn share icon, share button embedded on their pages. If you ever troll the web and you see that LinkedIn share button on a website, that's most likely as a result of something I worked on many years ago or my teams that's when I was great. at LinkedIn in subsequent years um, would have worked on. That's great. Um, and then also in the LinkedIn stream, if you, you know, see, for example, um, we had a program called the Influencer Program, where we had people like Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, um, at the then time, President Obama, writing long form content on LinkedIn, we would sign, effectively sign and co-opt co those individuals to publish on our platform as well. Nice. No, that's fantastic. Um, did you get involved? Uh, I know you were involved with uh, InShare. Um, how about like LinkedIn Learning? I'm seeing is like a new initiative. Yeah. Or, uh, it's somewhat influencer related. Um, were you involved with that? To some degree. For a brief period of time, a few years ago, I was involved in establishing relationships and partnerships for LinkedIn Learning in the enterprise. So I'll, I'll remove some of the um, lingo from that to help unpack for your listeners. So LinkedIn also has a set of products that as an employee of a company or just a random individual who yeah. wants to improve their learning and their skills can go on LinkedIn and subscribe like you would to a Netflix account to a library of content, learning and development content from topics like how to be a better manager or leadership, kind of broad stroke, soft skill topics to very specific things like how to, you know, um, expert level Adobe Premiere Pro for creators, like very technical topics as well. And an individual can access that content maybe because their company pays for it on their behalf as a part of a broader learning and development library or an effort, or you can just go as an individual as a Netflix account, again, as I said, and, and subscribe yourself. I played on the first half of the equation where when people in corporations access learning and development content, for many of your listeners, who've ever taken, for example, like a sexual harassment training or any kind of internal learning and development activity, you take it through a piece of software called a learning management system. They're very large companies out there to provide these companies like Cornerstone On Demand, Oracle, SAP, IBM, Workday, all the large enterprise software companies have a version of an LMS. My job was to basically, via partnership, enable all these companies who buy LinkedIn learning content to integrate that with the end user's experience, this Chrome nice. that they would view this in. So I was involved a little bit. That said, that's probably one of the areas that I think LinkedIn today can help ameliorate many of the issues uh, that, that are facing the world, whether it's upskilling individuals inside mm -hmm. of corporations who are already gainfully employed that need to, maybe you learned Avid in the past and you're a graphic designer, but you need to be really good at Adobe Premiere Pro as an example. Right. Like that's an upskilling inside an organization or 
you're a creator who wants to make money on TikTok or any of these other platforms, like maybe you want to learn Premiere Pro for that reason um, in the gig economy, right? And that's a, a bit of a spurious example, but LinkedIn Learning is probably one of the most exciting uh, products that the company has to offer today. Yeah, no, and it's been... Uh, great, not just from the user perspective, but I, I know some of the people who have flown out to the studio and have been filmed and they're yes. loving that experience as well. Yes, I, I would love to do a course one day. Yeah, for your for your listeners, basically all the content is owned, operated, produced by LinkedIn yeah. in this really dope facility in Southern California, maybe a little bit closer to where you are. It's near Santa Barbara, actually, in Carpinteria. And I've actually been to the studios there. It's an actual like legit Hollywood studio. You go yeah. in, there's different rooms. They have, you know, office setups. If you want to have your content filmed in like an office environment or like there, it's high production quality yeah. professionally. Uh, you know, you should maybe get a course there as well. <laughs> that would be awesome. Right? Um, no, it's really superbly done. Um, one of our guests, uh, one of our very few episodes, maybe episode, 14 or 15 uh, was Nancy, Nancy Rothstein mm. um, who um, she calls herself the sleep ambassador. And so mm. she's, uh, and it's also an amazing transition story. She started out with this career in, in finance and futures trading, uh, just sort mm. of this quant jock and then um, just, just pivoted and uh, began campaigning for the importance of sleep as kind of like the lowest hanging fruit to our wellness, but it yep. can make such a huge impact. And so, um, you know, her, her series on LinkedIn learning is about um, uh, the importance of sleep. And uh, so, yeah, she talked to me about it. And she managed to get it in like early March. So right before the country kind of shut down yeah. for oh, COVID. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I can imagine. I actually don't know how they're continuing to film courses, maybe asynchronously, but yeah, the, the high the high production quality, the, the the facilities to create that, the studios is one of the differentiators between yeah. other content platforms that you may see out there. Um, you can tell the difference. Like you can tell you're like watching a movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's just so critical to do. Um, so tell us about uh, your brief stint at Dropbox. Sure. <clears throat> so in 2015, I had been at LinkedIn then for five full-time years an extra year added on for my internships. So I've been there for, you know, I was in mid, I was 20. So I, I joined LinkedIn when I was, even before I could legally drink, I think I was, <laughs> I was that young. And then, so basically half of my twenties, my, my, all my twenties were given to LinkedIn. Right. And I was like, okay, what do I do for my next play? Jeff, our former CEO and now chairman, um, would espouse this mantra of next play, which is something that actually Coach K, um, the famous uh, college basketball coach, would say, no matter if you're running down, you know, running down the court, you run a play, whether you, you know, sink a three from uh, outside the key or whether you screw it up and the ball is stolen from you, you have to think about the next play, right? You have to always think about, okay, what do I do next? don't worry about what happened in the past. Basically don't cry over spilled milk. And so I was then in my mid twenties. I was like, I've got great experience from LinkedIn, but I need to differentiate. I need to build a diversity in my experiences so that I don't get pigeonholed as a LinkedIn guy. And it was like mm -hmm. a, a running joke amongst my friends where they would stop asking, like when you, you know, when you see somebody after a long time, like, hey, so what are you up to these days? Especially yeah, in Silicon yeah. Valley, because you tend to jump companies. <laughs> right. You're young. 
like no one would ask me that anymore. Like, so how's LinkedIn doing, right? They wouldn't even ask me like, what are you up to these days? Cause I knew right, right, right. I was at LinkedIn. And um, that's not why I left, but I um, wanted to expand my skill set in the partnerships realm um, to a company that was a bit smaller, younger, certainly number of people-wise smaller, but one that was heavily, heavily, heavily dependent on partnerships to grow at the time. Right. So, um, so I'll give an example to, to listeners to kind of round out why partnerships was very important to a company like Dropbox to grow and why I wanted to join a company like that. So if you've ever at the time used a Samsung phone and even today, you'll see that there is a set of apps that are preloaded on a device right out of the box, right? When you open it from the factory, you activate it. And so companies grow by virtue of leveraging the distribution of OEMs. Well, you see it on laptops, go to Costco, you're going to see Netflix, um, Hulu, now Quibi most likely plastered on all of the primarily TCL kind of lower tier end of TV boxes. You may see some on Samsung as well, some of the higher end TVs, but companies basically pay for distribution to have, you know, you're sitting on your couch, you fire up the TV and oh, bam, you got Netflix in front of you. Exactly. If you've never used Netflix, you're more likely to sign up for it. If you have Netflix, you're definitely not going to log into your Hulu account if you have it easily available on Netflix. And so in the early days, Dropbox had a very interesting partnership where phones had finite storage, right? Yeah. So there's hard drive space at the time, maybe two or three gigabytes. Dropbox had um, technically infinite storage, right? right, right, right. And so Dropbox would have a preload on Samsung devices where they could basically make your device have unlimited storage for all yeah. the photos, right? That you're taking with this beautiful Samsung phone and the camera that you, that comes with it. That's an example of a, a growth partnership where for an earlier stage company, that's been a very crowded and noisy space like cloud storage in which Dropbox played partnerships can make it or break it for the company. And so I wanted to like get into a company where you're in the thick of the action and um, I had uh, come across a couple of individuals that were very early at Google, um, whom I had a lot of respect for and I wanted to work for and kind of learn the craft of growth and strategic partnerships, um, business development. Um, uh, they were at Dropbox at the time leading the Dropbox BD team. And so I decided to join. I wanted to change a pace, different company on my resume, different experiences. I don't want to get pigeonholed. And so I had a great time. Uh, I was there for about a year and um, you know, ultimately I kept in touch with my uh, friends and colleagues at LinkedIn and um, was actually brought back in a leadership position at LinkedIn a year later, a very different line of business and a very diff effectively a completely new job. Um, but I, I very much enjoyed my time at Dropbox and got a ton of different experience than I had at LinkedIn. That's really great. Uh, I, I think, um, testing a different platform like that or a different scope, a uh, different size is always uh, so helpful. Um, there's a lot of yes. learnings and best practices that uh, you brought to them and then also brought back with you to, uh, to LinkedIn. So um, let's talk about how your role shifted at uh, LinkedIn. Yep. You were involved more with flagship and premium products and um, the yep. talent solutions yep. product offering. Yeah, from a sequencing perspective, it's, um, I started with the talent side Okay, and um, eventually uh, came on the flagship side. Well, I'll touch on it later, but I, my, my last role at LinkedIn, I eventually ran the entire team 
where I started on as an intern gotcha. um, to, to come full circle. But there was a period of time in between, which is actually my, um, the most difficult time I've had at LinkedIn in a good way, the most challenging, difficult to wrong word. I think challenging and I had a step function in growth. Like it was not linear. Mm -hmm. It was literally just went straight up. Um, so I <clears throat> came to manage a team. So for the, I, I'd manage individuals beforehand. I'd manage individuals actually relatively early in my career, both interns and direct reports, but now I was a responsible for, for like a team and like an actual, wasn't like project-based management, but an actual um, division of the business. Gotcha. And that was for our customers that fought our recruiting products. And so LinkedIn makes most of its money, probably unbeknownst to many individuals, makes most of its money selling products to recruiters, um, hiring managers inside of companies, anyone who's on the buy side of labor, yeah. uh, we sell a suite of software products to help them recruit on LinkedIn at scale. Whether it's, um, uh, we have a sourcing product that lets you mm -hmm. basically uh, a kind of juiced up search engine, basically searching all the profiles on LinkedIn that match your query of you're looking for an engineer with this very specific skill set um, to broader things. And so my job was to work with some of the largest companies in the world, companies that were much larger than LinkedIn, companies like IBM, SAP, Workday, um, uh, um, not Google at the time, but Google a little bit, Google certainly thereafter, to basically build partnerships and integrations between our companies to service our joint customers. And that was a very difficult time because I didn't know the recruiting business very well. I'd worked at LinkedIn for about six mm -hmm. years Right. the content side and the consumer side. So this was very different learning, um, different types of partnerships. Um, we were in the end, like if you're like India, you know, you're like a ship, you're like, we're like in the engine room of LinkedIn, yeah. right? Working on our talent business. And so the stakes are a lot higher in our partnerships. And so I grew a lot, um, had a, um, an amazing, amazing manager at the time. The one that I think I credit with the biggest, uh, the largest growth professionally that I've had actually an ex investment banker. So I got a lot of good habits in terms of, you know, analytical skills, rigor. Um, and then also other things that come with being a banker is like a really good work ethic, but really intense. Um, but I, I loved it. That was a, the, those two or three years that I was on that team um, was the, and I, I was getting married during that time too. So wow. that was a bunch of, uh, pretty so stress my wife and yeah, wedding. absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was good times. Now I'm getting like PTSD looking back. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what I'm hearing from you is that the challenges of running, um, a large group of people, but then also a very demanding client list. Yes. It's got, you kind of got sandwiched in between there. Yeah. And you know, it's a great point because you only have finite hours in the day. Right. And this was LinkedIn's top of the taglines that we had, which is talent is our first priority. Talent is the number one priority. And so even to invest in your team and upskilling and bringing up your team with you to meet the demands of the, like you can be the best partnership negotiator and find the way to build the best integration or get the most leverage out of a partner, deliver the most value to a partner. But if you're not building up your internal team along with it, um, partnerships, the partnerships themselves will crumble because these are multi-year partnerships. People don't yeah. stay at companies for many, many years. Yeah, and true. so like things like knowledge transfer or 
having a diversity of opinions of, of how to do certain things or different experiences only makes the deal that much better. Yeah. So it's literally in your best economic and business interest to have a diverse set of experiences and opinions and a strong team to deliver the outcome. Uh, and it took a while for me to really embrace. I kind of knew it, but to really embrace that, I, I won't lie, it took, it took a while. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and I appreciate you sharing that. So at some point, Rohan, you abandoned the idea of law school. Yeah, that was probably a, so I can say this now because I don't work at a company anymore. I'm still very close with my old boss and mentor. And he was actually at my wedding. His name is Scott Roberts, who was Sheena's boss at the time and really hired me. Um, I deferred law school for two years. I didn't tell them that. So I actually got accepted uh, into law school here in California, but I had a deferral letter that I just kept in my back pocket just in case the LinkedIn thing didn't work out. I got fired, I screwed up or like, who knows? Um, but uh, so there's no uh, signal in law school. I actually negotiated a ton of contracts as a part of my job. So like, if that's what I wanted to do, I got to do it uh, in a biz dev capacity and people in biz dev do that every day, working right. hand in hand with their legal team and, and negotiating contracts. So I think I got, I got the fix that I wanted. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And you have a, a great share about um, delivering that news to your parents and their yes, reaction. Yes. <laughs> so um, my parents, uh, to remind the listeners, you know, this is now, um, I, when I first graduated college, high school, going into college, uh, we had a couple stores and they're expanding. So my parents are like super, super busy, right? Now I'm graduating college, going on into the workforce. And so they're still super busy, still working on the stores, expanding the stores. It's not that they didn't care about my education. They knew I was on a good path. You wanted to be a lawyer. Okay, you know, you know, eldest son, he's doing, I didn't drink or anything like that in college. Like I was, a, I was a good kid, right? It was like, I was fine. I was on a good track. So they didn't really like get too involved in the minutia of my academics. They probably knew what I was majoring in, I think. Uh, my mom majored in political science. <laughs> but um, but when I told them I didn't want to go to law school or I thought I was going to skip law school or defer it, they were like, what are you doing? They were like, then they were like, what is this LinkedIn thing? What are you thinking? Like, <laughs> that's a huge, horrible decision. Like, you're not an engineer. Why are you doing a tech company? What is this LinkedIn thing? And so the I explained it as best as I could. Um, LinkedIn wasn't a household name necessarily in 2009. Apparently, yeah. and my parents are not in tech. Like they don't, they're not in that kind of circle, right? Um, and uh, so like, we're gonna come down, and this is during a work day, okay? Where, because we had a store in San Jose, like, hey, um, you know, we're in San Jose, we're gonna stop by campus. Um, would love to meet your boss. I was like, what? They basically came to campus to interview my boss for a job that I was interviewing for. Like, what kind of inception is that? Like, I'm yeah. interviewing for my full-time gig to convert from internship to full-time. My parents want to come and interview my boss. It's like, what are you doing to our son? Why are you getting him to quit law school? And, um, and, uh, and then this is Scott. And I told this story at my wedding. Scott told it, I think, at my wedding or one of the, you know, uh, in a public setting as well that we were in together. And, um, you know, they met with Scott and, uh, you know, they hit it off and they were, they just wanted that assurance for parents, right? That he's not jumping off the deep end. Now, naturally um, I've trusted my gut, my intuition for the majority of my life and it's generally worked out in the way that I wanted it to. It may not be the best outcome, but I, it's, 
the expected outcome, uh, you know, is, is what happened. And I think they just wanted that. Um, they're probably anxious, right? Because yeah. like economy. So I graduated high college into one of the the recovery after some one of the biggest dips in 2008. So I graduated college technically in 09, but I stayed on an extra till 2010. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. So it's really funny. Like I, I my 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 parents interviewed my employer for a job that I was interviewing for, which is like the craziest story. It is a good story. Uh, thankfully, it all worked out well. It all worked um, out well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Along. yeah. <laughs> um, tell us about um, you know, the, the transition now. And of course, um, in your um, letter, parting letter, you talk about how yes. uh, the magic of threes and it's yes. been a third of your, your life has been with, uh, with LinkedIn. Um, but, uh, you know, I would just love for you to share because we, we like to focus on transitions and what causes transitions sure. and pivots. And so talk about that. And then also what you're moving towards now. Absolutely. Um, one of the best orators that I know is actually our former CEO, Jeff Weiner, mm-hmm. now the executive yeah. chairman. And I'll, I'll give you one anecdote of actually of a, Je- a Jeff Weiner anecdote. Maybe your, your listeners will be interested. I have many some not so pleasant ones where he's a very tough operator, tough leader, and some that have really stick with me from a learning perspective. So Jeff um, is an incredible speaker. You can Google him and look at his speeches on YouTube, um, like TED Talk and above level speaker with clarity, concision, just an incredible speaker. And he actually gave a, a public speaking workshop to just our team of 10 BD people about five years ago, maybe even six years ago. And one thing that stuck with me, so my job at the time was the in-share button distribution that we talked about. I basically had my little 10 minute pitch, call up a publisher or get on a phone call, tell them about our news ecosystem, about LinkedIn, and basically you run through your elevator pitch and then some. And Jeff told me, your first pitch versus your 700th pitch, need to have the same level of energy, enthusiasm, passion, the recipient should not know that it's your 700th pitch. They should have the confidence that you know your material as if it's your 700th, but it should not be rote or without passion. And that stuck with me because incredible salespeople or leaders constantly, especially in large matrix organization when you're disseminating a message repetition is key but you can't just like read a corporate slogan off a powerpoint slide or an email like that's not it like owning and embracing it and so jeff would always teach his leads three if you ever want anyone to remember anything make it three and it's scientifically proven it's proven in literature and many if you look around your daily life and encourage your listeners afterwards to think about it, like a lot of the things that we operate on are in rules of three. So the rule of three, as it comes to LinkedIn, as you mentioned, after spending 10 and a half years there, I realized that literally one, one third of my life at 33 years old was spent working for one company doing several things, but bucketing up into one thing, which is business development and strategic partnerships. What I found was over the years, the things that I most enjoyed, the things that I actually sought out on my nights and weekends. So 
after having kind of a grueling work day for the, with the little mental energy or capacity that I had left, I found the stuff that I really sought out, even after all that is what gave me energy. That was mentoring, coaching, mm-hmm. speaking as well. Um, some of my favorite experiences at LinkedIn were where I got to speak in front of hundreds of our joint customers with a partner delivering a keynote overseas or presenting at a class at Columbia, um, at a journalism class on digital journalism to dozens of students about how LinkedIn was co-opting the media ecosystem. So I enjoyed doing those things. Or even I spoke at the PGA Tour conference in Florida about how social media, golf and professional networking kind of interact Mm. together. I was on a panel there. So like that was like not my day job. And I realized what would it be like to have that be a part of your day job or to help enable other people become better presenters, better communicators, better speakers. And so that combined with my passion for coaching and teaching, I have two younger siblings on my side. My younger sister-in-law just graduated college as well. My brother graduated college last year, two years ago. So helping them through the machinations of recruiting for jobs. And um, a few years ago, I published an article on LinkedIn when I got promoted to director. I basically went from an intern to a director and leading the entire team that I started as an intern. I started getting a lot of messages from individuals in college, university, or even young professionals about how to chart their own path. Mm -hmm. I came from a non-traditional background, liberal arts major from a non-target school at the time for LinkedIn, even though I went to Berkeley, to then becoming an executive in the tech industry. And then making a pivot again. So I would enjoy these coffee chats, virtual or non-virtual that I would have. And I wanted to make a business out of it. And so, um, you know, I probably a year before I left, I had started to have these conversations with my boss at LinkedIn to discuss my long-term future. And I didn't think necessarily that it would be simply doing deals and biz dev, which is an incredible career. And I certainly didn't master that craft necessarily um but i wanted to do something a little bit closer to my core skill sets and passion right so finding the intersection between skill and passion like i think this is going to be it so i started a firm um uh, about a month ago called arbor advisory where i provide three types of services one is executive leadership or career coaching the second is strategic biz dev advisory and the third is actually course instruction. So I did a, a virtual course and a product management class a couple of weeks ago on what is business development. And um, over the course of the next academic calendar, we'll be working to eventually become an adjunct professor as well um, at Berkeley or other universities as well. That's great. That's a really awesome platform. Um, tell us about um, the genesis of the name. Why Arbor? So um, I thought a lot about what, how I viewed my career progression and my professional development. And, you know, sitting here, you can see the beautiful trees in Northern California, growing up in a town called Oakville in Canada, I've always been surrounded by trees. And so I've always taken an ecosystem approach to my career development. And what does that mean? The, the first thing is, you know, building and growing a strong T-shaped profile, you know, so, you know breadth and, and depth in your hard and soft skills 
and planting those roots is only the really the first step mm-hmm. to becoming a professional. It's how you kind of intertwine those relationships with the other people in your ecosystem. And it's especially true in Silicon Valley, whether it's your colleagues, your employees, your stakeholders or your superiors, investors, partners, competitors, we live kind of an intertwined relationship. And as you cultivate those relationships and tend to them and lands, literally landscape them, I came up with this metaphor of Arbor Advisory. You know, so much of the growth is deep, but also expanding and understanding your ecosystem. It's born out of growing my professional career in an internetworked um, industry like Silicon Valley. Your success is not just how great your app is. It's can you get users? Can you work with Apple and Google to make sure that users can get your app, right? There's a lot of controversy now about Epic and Fortnite working with Apple, for example, one of the biggest games. Uh, maybe your kids play, you know, play Fortnite, for example, right? <laughs> and so like those kinds of relationships and understanding that intertwining is what led me to found the company, which is called Arbor Advisory. That's great. Congratulations on, on founding it. Um, who's an ideal client for you? There's a couple of buckets. So if I kind of go across the spectrum of three offerings, the first on executive leadership or career coaching, this would likely be a um, one is a new manager. Let's say you're newly promoted as a manager. You've got a team now you're responsible for an individual. You're trying to become a manager. That kind of cohort of individuals is um, I've gone through that and I can uniquely, I think, offer um, ways to help people grow in that skill set. Um, but certainly for even seasoned executives, especially those that need to lead large teams and especially in a remote world, clarity and communication, both written and verbal, especially if you're doing public speaking, you're chatting on Zoom with one or many individuals, that's something where I think I can add unique value and I have for you know, seasoned business executives. And on the career coaching side, if you're somebody that is a new career starter or in the middle of your career and you're wanting to prep for an interview or have a resume review or things like of that nature, maybe more focus on a specific job versus you know, long-term executive coaching, I can help there as well. In terms of business development or strategic partnerships advisory, I'm currently advising a consumer internet tech company that doesn't have a BD team right now and has some existing partnership deals, but is looking to grow out a BD team. And I'm kind of designing that for them and helping them think about some strategic partnerships. And then the third bucket, um, I'll be going to be working a lot with professors, my old professors at Berkeley and and other business school professors, whether they're business school or law school professors on topics of business development, effective communication, public speaking, negotiation strategy, all those topics where I would love to be a, a guest speaker and have curriculum that I can build on those fronts. Thanks for talking about uh, the, your three pillars of your business and, and the ideal clients for you. Um, it's just leaving quite an impression on me, Rohan, that um, it really speaks to strong passion for this type of work because um, it must have been a tough decision. You left a very lucrative job uh, that is the envy of so many uh, peers in, in this space. Yeah. So, you know, this high level tech executive position in a leading company. Uh, and you could have just kept going and, and growing with yep. uh, with that business. Um, yep. Yeah, so it's not lost on me that I decided to make a career pivot to helping people become better public speakers and communicators 
on the cusp of a pandemic where we're now all at home, not in an office. You no, know, you and I would love to be doing this in your studio there uh, in, in Southern California. We'd love to come down there, but um, we're in the world that we are. And so it really goes back to what I mentioned earlier about finding the intersection between skill and passion. And the more I grew in my company and I over-indexed on growing my career relative to my age, right? So I was, mm. grew fast early. And you know, if I kind of continue to hustle and power through and grow my skill sets in the areas where I need to grow, I probably would have grown up with the company. And who knows, I might've had Scott's position, the team lead, global team right. lead one day. But then I, I started to spend more time thinking about, well, what makes me happy? What makes me healthy physically, mentally? Where do I get energy and passion from? And it was all of these other things that were not necessarily part of my day job, right? So even after having, we're, we're at a demanding company. Don't get me wrong. Like I have incredibly, incredibly intelligent peers that worked way harder than I did in many cases, but I also worked hard as well. Everyone had to have a certain standard. The top Microsoft is a trillion dollar valuation company, right? And so that rat race, you constantly need to think about, is it in my best interest? Am I going to be healthy and happy? And at the time I started thinking about, well, let me try something very different than the running the corporate rat race for a while. Will I be happier? I wasn't unhappy, but I'd find maybe a different kind of happiness, mm -hmm. right? a different sense of calm, a different sense of peace. We call it burnout, right? Often it's the... Mm -hmm the um it's not a four-letter word but it's like the thing that shall not be named right especially right. amongst high-performing teams kind of type a people yeah. they've had a type a resume at a type a company and taking that time for mental health and and then there are a myriad of ways in which you could do that exercising working out taking pto or in my case it was really like scratching this itch which i think will become something much much bigger in creating my own company and so i'm very mindful of that you know i was in my early 30s you know kind of a mid-career professional even though in my early 30s just given the trajectory that i had and married for three years maybe wanting to start a family having the honestly being blessed with the ability to take the foot off the gas on a very lucrative job and make an investment in myself. I think of it like an opportunity cost that way. Maybe I do think more like an econ major than, than I thought my wife was an econ major at Davis <laughs> and is, you know, thinks and lives in spreadsheets and has brought a lot of structure into my life. And so um, I think that trade-off, it will pay off in terms of mental health, physical health, et cetera. That's fantastic. Well, it's a courageous decision, uh, not one that uh, many people take. Um, you know, the golden handcuffs okay. often keep yes. them. Yep. Uh, in place and so uh, I, I commend you for it it's a uh, it's a good appreciate start. you saying that time will tell will financially pay off but i know that it's i would regret not have made making that investment in myself i'm really exactly if scott took a bet on me many years ago i'm going to take a bet on myself as well now nice no, that's really well said Rohan, this has been such a great conversation thank you for um, having me on it was, was a great uh discussion here and 